tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday with Matt. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. What's happening? What are you doing? We're on a big trip and we're going around Australia. Mm-hmm. And we were meant to be going through Victoria, but we couldn't do that. So my dad, he had to spend a whole day cancelling it all. And now we've planned to go up to Queensland and it's going to be an eight-hour drive right now. So I'm currently talking to you in the car. Good on you. Nice to talk to you. How old are you, Hannah? I'm 10. You're a little possum. And where do you live? Where's home? Home is Wollongong. We were going to go to Tassie and we were going to do a full loop around Tasmania and then go back up. Well, you'll be able to do it sometime, Hannah. So you're going to Queensland now, and then where will you go after Queensland? Yeah, we're going to go up to Queensland, and the first hotel we're going to stay at has a water slide, so I'm excited about that. We love water slides, Hannah. We love water slides. I love the water slides. (laughs) So you'll have a great time. And um, you're doing uh, school of the back seat, I suppose, are you? Still doing your... Barely no school at all. Barely no school. Like, my parents sometimes give me some sort of educational thing, but not very often. From a kid's point of view, that sounds very good. Hannah, <laughs> lovely to talk to you this morning, and enjoy your trip to Queensland, and, yep. and I'll bump into you sometime in the gong, OK? OK. Bye. If you're rich or you ain't got a cracker, they tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it... Sunday with Macca. They all call it Sunday with Macca. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Macca. Get on with it, Macca. I will. That was Hannah last week and uh, barely no school at all, (laughs) which is a great way to travel. Um... And you learn a lot when you travel anyway in the back seat. You can count horses and sheep and see things and stop at places and talk to people. It's just, it's a, it's a wonderful experience. Good morning, 1300 700 222. That's our number. If you're uh, up yet, um, you can give us a ring if you've got a little story. I went to Yeovil during the week. I'll tell you about that this morning. We've got a lovely uh, news, all over news coming up at Court to Wait and some people I've met. Um, you'll meet them. Agnes Worth says, listen to part of your program this afternoon. That was Valentine's Day in Australia. I sent a letter to you in 96, which you read in 97 um, on my 50th. I love the fact that we can now listen via the internet, but noon on Saturday is not nearly as convenient as Sunday morning. We live in central British Columbia, Canada. Temperatures just warmed up to minus 20. We love your country and have visited several times since we lived there in 1995 and returned last year in March for a little while. You will be happy to know that we've had the same craziness over toilet paper as you did. That's very comforting to know, Agnes. Our COVID closures have not been as strict as or as effective as yours. Still love the program, says Agnes Worth. Thank you, Agnes. These are some of the letters... I read from back pages, and Claudine Ward says, Just had a call from my cousin on Bruni. You had read our letter from 1986, so listened to it on podcast. Sadly, Gary, like Stan Costa, is no longer with us, but the turtle still cruises the waters of the Gulf. Um, That's the Gulf of Carpentaria, with yarn at the wheel. Shane has moved from fishing vessels to freight, and myself, when asked 
Do you go out in a boat, love? Now I have to say, only occasionally. Thanks for the memory, says Claudine Ward. Thank you, Claudine. And Brenda Mackenzie says, listening to the program this morning, brought back memories from the past. Firstly, Jock Douglas talking about native limes. I'm going to get one. I'm going to try and find one and grow it. Our hometown is Mitchell. That is my husband and myself and also Jock's hometown. Then you followed with a beautiful song, Valentine, which reminded me of another Mitchell lad whose name was Valentine. A few years ago, at the behest of a friend, I sent you a copy of my book, Under the Pepperina Tree, Memories of Marino or Mrs., which I wrote with my best friend, Rosalie Sharp. I'm sure you're inundated with such reading matter, um, commenting because of this morning's reminiscences and the fact that after eight years I still have people looking for a copy. Under the Pepperina Tree, it sounds nice, doesn't it? Memories of Marino or Mrs., I think I've got it there with a pile of books. And you know what happened the other day, in the 19th, of course, was the um, uh, commemoration of the bombing of Darwin. I have this letter from a bloke called Terry Byrne, who is 96. I think he's 96. Did he say 96? Yep. Anyway, um, he says, um, February 19th is a day in Australian war history which slides by almost unnoticed. It doesn't rate with the significant remembrances of World War II, like the Middle East, Tobruk, El Alamein, Singapore, New Guinea, Kokoda, and rightly so. They are all recalled on Anzac Day. February the 19th is an annual, annual memorial event held in Darwin, and for some years there used to be a gathering at the Sydney Cenotaph, and I think a few other cenotaphs around Australia. On that day in 1942, just after 10am, four Japanese aircraft carriers launched 188 aircraft whose main objective was attacking ships and port facilities in Darwin, uh, in the harbour, and the main RAAF airbase. There. A total of 65 Allied warships and merchant vessels were in Darwin Harbour, Harbour and the USS Peary was amongst the larger naval vessels, vessels lost that day. In total, 10 ships were sunk. The bodies of dead and wounded naval and merchant sailors and wharf workers were swept out to sea on the fast-flowing tide and lodged in mangroves. Uh, the strike on Darwin was by the very same striking force that had devastated Pearl Harbour a few weeks earlier and brought America into the war. The second wave, made up of 54 land-based medium bombers, arrived over to Darwin just before midday and separated into two groups, flying at 18,000 feet. One of these formations attacked the airfield, um, while the other approached from the northeast, and two formations arrived over the base at the same time and dropped their bombs simultaneously. Wow. <clears throat> I remember it well, says Terry Byrne. I was 17 and manning a World War I Lewis machine gun against the dive bombers from a position adjacent to the airfield during the first attacks, and now, at 96, I think I've one of, I'm one of the few remaining Darwin defenders of the air attacks on that day, and the days that followed. After the February raid, the Northern Territory and parts of Western Australia's north were bombed approximately 100 times. Darwin, 84 times. Darwin Remembrance Day is worth more than a passing mention in the news of the day. I remember as a wake-up call to Australia at the time. There was a distinct possibility of a landing on the west side, and in fact, it's not generally known that the Japanese actually did land a small exploratory force on the coast but the lines of supply across the Indian Ocean and the Australian naval fleet cancelled out the idea. I had the privilege, says Terry Byrne, of doing my bit to defend my country on home soil when it was attacked. 
I was there for lots more raids before being sent home and discharged underaged. Turning 18, I re-enlisted in the RAAF, and guess what, Macca? I eventually finished my war with 24 Heavy Bomber Squadron operating out of Darwin. How about that? Says Terry Byrne, ex-ABC Cine Canra, and he was a cameraman on the ABC's Big Country series, was Terry. Thank you, Terry, very much. Our number 1300 Love to talk to you wherever you are, up and about. Uh, g'day, this is Macca. G'day, Macca. It's Michael McMahon here. I'm a, actually, they call my mates call me Macca too, funny enough. There but, you uh, go. Funny about that, yeah. <laughs> mate, <laughs> mate, I'm a macadamia grower up in the Bundaberg region in Queensland. And I just heard you say on the radio there that it's raining everywhere. And I wanted to let you know it hasn't rained here very much in the last three years. Well, no, I know. I've, yeah. I've, got, a, I've got some correspondence about that. Go and tell us. So it hasn't rained much for the last three years. and uh, But we've got... and we've. Uh, our dam up here, Paradise Dam, which feeds the largest macadamia growing region in, in, in the world, the largest avocado growing region in Australia, the largest sweet potato growing region in Australia. And I'd love you to name a crop, and I reckon I can tell you it's grown here. <laughs> but that dam's, that dam's going to be out of water by, by June this year, and that's on, the, on some water's own modelling. In fact, 25% of Australia's fresh produce comes out of this region. And it comes out of this region because of the water that we've had in Paradise Dam. And people like me have, in, have invested in, in, uh, in my kids' futures and their kids' futures by planting tree crops and permanent horticulture and also lots of vegetable crops. And they've grown their businesses since that dam's been built. The growth in this region since 2005, when Paradise Dam was constructed, has been phenomenal. And last year... The government saw fit. They got a, they got a fright. They took a memo from an engineer and uh, and decided the dam wasn't built, the, the dam wasn't safe, and they lowered the wall by 5.8 metres, which effectively took nearly 50% of the water holding capacity of that dam. It's gone. And what's more, they let 100,000 megalitres of water flow down the river because they wanted to get that water level down as quick as they could. Aren't they going to... Aren't they going to, you know, build it up again? What isn't isn't just a wasn't it a matter of just, you know, fixing the fixing the dam wall up and and taking it back to where it was? I mean, that seems sensible to me. Seems sensible, doesn't it? But but it's um it's very unlikely to happen. There's uh they've they've spent they've taken the easy way out and lowered the wall and managed the risk. But there's no promise that no promise nothing in the budget. There's no political will to restore that dam back to its full height. So the growers in in the Bundaberg region uh, are raising a million dollars in seed funding for one of the biggest class actions in Australia's history to hold the government to account and to force them to put that wall back up. And I can tell you, Macca, since a shed meeting last week, in that one meeting we raised $450,000 from the growers in the community of Bundaberg. I've been to a number of meetings in the last week, and what are we now? Sunday. So we're Sunday the week following, and we're almost at our million-dollar target. Yeah, Michael, you grow nice uh, tomatoes there and uh, nice strawberries. I know because I met a bloke up there growing these lovely tomatoes. I found these tomatoes, and it's very hard to find lovely-tasting tomatoes. He was around Bundaberg somewhere. I was, um, yeah, Flavorinos was the brand. Look, I'm looking at my weather report here, the forecast, um, 
and there's troughs around. As you know, there's up in the tropics, they're getting heaps of rain. But as I said, also, um, it doesn't mean that everybody gets rain. And, and I've got a letter here, which I'll read in a minute, about um, dryness. It says here, a trough from the ACT to Kunamala on Wednesday causes this isolated storm activity. There may be some water around. Have you, you obviously been looking at the, the forecast. Is there any? Do you see any rain on the horizon? Unfortunately not, Macca. There's, uh, the, the forecast for this region for the next three months looks like we might get 100 mil. And um, 100 mil is not going to be dam-filling rain. So if you if you did visit the region, you'd look around and say, oh, the grass looks green and, and everything looks good. But mm. it's there's been no no runoff rain for a number of years now to fill, to fill the water storages on people's farms and, more importantly, to fill Paradise Dam. And, uh, and it's almost empty. So next year we're staring down the barrel of very low allocations, and I'm not sure how the growers are going to survive up here. It's also one of the largest sugarcane growing regions in um, in Australia as well. There's, you're right, tomatoes, tomato strawberries. You know, there's blueberries, lemons, mandarins. You name you, it. Ginger. You you name it, Macca, and I can tell you it's grown here. Is um, this is the food bowl for Australia, and and our state government has ripped it out from underneath us. And we've got to we've got to fight them to put it back, and I wanted to let you know about that fight. Well, good, good, good on you. I mean, it just seems to me, um, you know, if there's a problem with a dam, well, you say, okay, there's a problem, let's rebuild it or rejig it or or something, and put some money in it because, you know, it, it, well, it seems to me to make sense. Seems to me to make sense too, Macca, and we'll we'll make them see that sense. You mark my words, and I'd love to have uh, your support and and your listeners' support because it's. Um, this is a fight we, we have to win, and we will win. Uh, Macca, it's nice to talk to you, mate. Um, <laughs> I'll see you in Bundy sometime. See, we haven't been able to travel much. Nobody has, really, because you can't. This border's been closed down all over Australia. But um, uh, I hope to get up there and uh, say good day, Michael. But you good, good luck with your, your fight for all the growers up there, and um, I, I'm sure the community's behind you too. They are, Mako. We've had uh, we've had donations from a number of uh, local businesses in town. This is not just a fight for the growers because agriculture is a foundation stone of our economy up here. And so a number of businesses in town realise that and they've been chipping in towards this fight as well. But thanks very much for your time. I'd love to host you if you do get up this way. Please keep my number and uh, appreciate the time on the on the phone this morning, Mako. Thank you. See you, Mako. Bye. See ya. This is from Elizabeth. This is sort of about weather. Elizabeth Seidler Booth. She says, um, I wrote a proper letter to you years ago. I've opted for the electronic monster on this occasion out of necessity. The nearest posting box is 28 k's away, and who knows what, when Australia Post would deliver a letter to you. I decided to send something by priority mail recently, but I was told that the service had been discontinued due, due to COVID. <laughs> My mate, the plumber, rang up. No, the electrician rang up the other day. I came to see me, actually, and he said, uh, you know that cheque you sent me back in October because I had to pay him another way because it didn't arrive? He said, well, it just arrived on Wednesday. Danny said, so it only took, what, October, November, December, January, February, five months to arrive. Five months to arrive. And, and once... I sent one, but that was only six weeks ago. Kill the one that's I sent six weeks ago. That's that's still missing, and and people wonder why I quibble when um, the people who 
worked for Australia Post and got the $5,000 watches. These are people, cursed ladies and gentlemen, on six-figure six salaries. They're on six-figure th- salaries. And they also award themselves $5,000 watches. I mean, the rest of the population or many of the population are working really hard, like courier drivers who work for Australia Post and working really hard, work really hard every day, day after day, do a good job. They don't get $5,000 watches. Isn't it amazing that the the six-figure and seven-figure people give themselves awards? Um, Unbelievable. Anyway, back to Elizabeth's letter. The National Disaster... That's her head, her topic on her email, a national disaster and a natural disaster. The national disaster to which I refer is the little-known fact that Snickers bars, long a favourite of many Australians, are now being made in China. This information is printed on the wrapper, but you have to look pretty hard to find it. It's hidden under the part of the wrapper that's sealed and folded over. Sadly, few of us actually look. After all, Snickers bars have always been made here, and when you get your hands on one, you're too busy tearing the wrapper off to bother reading what's printed. Rest assured, Snickers bars and all other Mars products have been removed from our menu, says Elizabeth. You talk of pluviometers on your show, Ian, galvanise me to writing. Sadly, not all Australia is getting rain, and those of us who are missing out are getting increasingly desperate. We breed beef cattle on some 5,500 acres in the foothills just inland of Bundaberg in Queensland. If you just got up, we had a a call a little uh, while ago from uh, Michael. Michael McMahon, uh, he's uh, in Bundaberg, talking about Paradise Dam, no rain there, no rain for all the wonderful fruit and vegetables they grow around there. Um, Elizabeth continues, this is supposed to be our wet season and the Bureau promised us above average rainfall due to La Nina, mind you. They also forecast wetter than average winter and spring and they were wrong on both counts. We have two rain gauges, but I don't know what we'll do with them when JobKeeper payments cease at the end of March. <laughs> we cannot afford to keep paying them when there's no work for them. Kel, no work for the pluviometers. During the week, I was at a little town called Yeovil, you'll find that on your maps, um, where there's a Banjo-Patterson Museum and a, a, a statue, really, larger than life, of Banjo in his military uniform because he was a military man, as, amongst other things, and a, and a poet. And uh, that was unveiled. There was a big crowd. It was lovely. Little town. It's a little hamlet, really, uh, Yeovil. It's not a city or a big country town. It's a small little hamlet. But um, there was, I reckon there was four to 500 people there. And I bumped into Jonathan Cook, who's the Deputy Consul General to Sydney, the British Deputy Consul General to Come and meet him. So I'm talking to Jonathan Cook. We're at Yeovil. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. Jonathan's the British Deputy Consul General to Sydney. Yes. And you're up here at Yeovil. You raised the Scottish flag, I think. Indeed, yeah. It was lovely for everyone to see you here. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here today. It's important that as we are here representing the UK, remembering the close links between the UK and Australia, and we try very hard to make sure that that's a modern and diverse relationship. But we also want to make sure that we're remembering the close historical links. And I think for me personally, coming from a military family, the links between our militaries go back so far. And the statue remembers Banjo's time in World War One, where he was serving uh, for king and country, as Alf put it earlier. And it's just such a pleasure to be able to be here and to be able to be part of the commemoration of that period of his life. Jonathan, tell me about being a Deputy Consul General. How did that come about? 
Yeah, so I've been in our diplomatic service now, the British version of DFAT, for about 13 years now and came out to Australia November 2019 and uh, what a first kind of year and a half it's been in Australia. So arrived to bushfires and then once the bushfires went away, my firstborn was born. Uh, so I'm glad to say my son was born here in Australia and then, uh, although he won't be supporting Australia in the rugby or cricket, that's for sure. <laughs> and then once my paternity leave finished, COVID hit. And so we spent the next few months working really hard to try and help British nationals who were stranded in Australia by border closures and border impacts of COVID. But now, thankfully, due to how well Australia's handled COVID, we're able to get out and about and come to events like this. And so part of my role is making sure that we don't just spend our time in Sydney, but that we're getting out. And so it's just great to see more of Australia. When did you first come to Australia? I first came here as a 17-year-old, spent a month in the Northern Territories, which was absolutely fantastic, although our party got attacked by a water buffalo and we got airlifted out the bush, which was uh, rather the introduction for a a Brit to Australian wildlife. Uh, It's true that everything here wants to try and kill you at some point. And then as a 19-year-old, I came back as a backpacker and spent three months in Mildura picking fruit and so really fell in love with regional Australia uh, when I had that opportunity. Yeah, we fell in love with um, backpackers too because it seems they're the only people who do the work, certainly with fruit picking. Yeah, it was hard work. I mean, it was 12-hour days, six days a week, but I loved it. I worked for an incredible, incredible farmer and his wife and they treated us with, you know, they, we were part of the family and they were wonderful to us and uh, so it was a great three months. I learned a lot in that time and also uh, there's nothing quite like uh, picking fruit in uh, Mildura for getting you nice and fit so it was it was it was good for my health as well as for my bank balance. You talked about expats here British expats and we've heard a lot about getting Australians back home is that the same thing in England does Britain want to get their expats back home to Britain is that a big thing? Yeah, so we worked for about three months solid on that. And so it was obviously only those who wanted to go back. There's lots of joint nationals here or permanent residents here who were very happy to stay in Australia. But those who were, particularly those who were here on temporary visas, such as tourists, uh, many of them were keen to get back to the UK. But a lot of airlines were shutting down and they're finding it very difficult to get back. And so we worked with the airlines a lot to try and get those people back. And thankfully, those who've wanted to get back have now been able to do so. So we've been able to transition away from that work. But for about three months, it was, it was all we really focused on. Working in the diplomatic service, is that, uh, what will I say, a good gig? Do you enjoy that? Is it fairly serious at times, especially these days? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have to say, personally speaking, I love my country. I'm very proud to be British and I'm very proud to be able to have a job where I can represent Britain overseas. That's For me, that's a dream come true. But I... You know, I love traveling. I have wanderlust, as people put it, and I love experiencing new cultures. And so the opportunity to live overseas and represent my country whilst also exploring those countries and learning more about them for me is is the dream gig, you might put it. Yeah, and when I read about what's happening overseas and snowing in London and snowing yes. in, in England, you've probably got a good gig, actually. Yeah, so I, I noticed uh, whilst I was saying a few words here that it was 28 degrees here and it was my mum was telling me that it, it was minus three last night in, in where we live in the UK. So, yeah, somewhat different at the moment. Jonathan, it's lovely to meet you and, uh, yeah, good luck with you. How long will you be here? Uh, another three or four years probably in Australia altogether. Oh, you'll be an Aussie by then. You'll be wearing a Cobra. Well, and... well, my son will definitely have the accent, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice to meet you. Thank you very, very nice much. Nice to meet you, in. Thank good you. G'day Macca, it's Alec here. I'm uh, I'm on the highway just near Grafton, travelling north. Uh, how come? I am on the way to Idesville in Queensland to run some workshops for, from, for some Indigenous kids. Uh-huh, tell me more. 
I um I teach them to make a didgeridoo. So we do it all in one day. They um they start with some termite hollow didgeridoo blanks at the beginning of the day, and and um, we we give them some tools, and they work through the day. And at the end of the day, they've got a didgeridoo that they can play <laughs> and that they can take home with them. How good is that? Can you play the didge, Alec? I can, yes. And is that hard to learn? I don't believe so. I I find I can teach someone to play it in about two weeks if they do the practice. Well, there you go. I'll come and see you sometime. Where do you live, Alec? You live near Grafton, I, do you? No, you. I'm no. I'm travelling north. I live around the Port Macquarie area on the mid north coast of New South Wales. All right, we'll talk further, Alec. But I'd love to. I'd love to learn the ditch. I've got a couple of ditches, but I can't play them. I'm, <laughs> it's nothing like playing the trombone. You need a lot of wind, don't you? Oh. Uh, no, I don't really think that either. You probably need to be able to breathe through your nose well. If you've got a blocked nose, it can make it really difficult. But um, no, it's it's just a matter of getting the efficiency on the lips and learning to circular breathe and all that. You now it's like patting your head and rubbing your stomach. It just it's a bit of coordination bit to of, work on over time. Bit of practice. Good on you, Alec. I've got to fly, but nice to talk to you, mate. Good on you. All the best. Thanks, mate. This is from a lady called Pam. Pam Jewers. Um, she says, this morning while listening to Australia Live, this is last Sunday, I heard Brockoff's Biscuits mentioned, and maybe I could help with the answer to the question of what happened to that brand. I know you'll remember my husband Ron, Ron Dewars, from the few times we met you, especially that hilarious moment when you were at the RSL Club in Kempsey and you got Ron up on stage to endeavour to put a sayo in his gob in one go, complete with spotlights and crumbs flying everywhere. It really brought the house down. Sadly, Ron is no longer with us. He passed away last September. In his own words, he was an avid listener to Macaron Sunday. Um, Another time when you interviewed him in 1991, he had phoned from Cape Canaveral in Florida where he was leading a Rotary Group study exchange and had witnessed the launch of the Atlantis space shuttle. That was another amusing interview, which our sons delighted in reenacting to this day, having great fun in replaying the tape for family amusement. You'll also remember Ron, Ron Dewars, for his involvement with St George Baseball Club when we lived in Sydney. He was instrumental in starting baseball in Warhope in 79 and establishing the Warhope Giants Baseball Club. And that St George Baseball Club, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, was a wonderful, wonderful baseball team, including the wonderful Normie O'Neill, who was just a legend. And Ronnie Dewars was a great player. Who was in that? Rusty Lawrence. Was Jeff in that? I'm not sure. Jeff Gray. Um... Yeah, great, great baseball team. But And this is his wife, Pam. And uh, she continues, Ron managed the Arnott's Warehouse in Warhope for 90 years until the takeover by American company Campbell Soups in 1993. Arnott's Warehouse, right? Ron was given a book, The Story of Arnott's Biscuits, a history and a celebration written by Charles Bogue and researched by Lawrence Durrant. It's a wonderful account of William <coughs> William Arnott's beginning as a baker in Maitland in 1853 and the foreword was written by Peter Luck, the journalist. It seemed after the uh, Second World War, with the population expanding and the need for more production of biscuits and upgrading of equipment, Arnott's, together with other biscuit marketing companies, met and decided to amalgamate. Arnott's already had on board Morrow's in Brisbane, Motterham's in Adelaide and Mills and Ware's in Fremantle. By 1964, all the famous biscuit manufacturers, including Brockoff's, joined forces to become the Australian Biscuit Company Proprietary Limited, later changed to Arnott's Biscuits 
Limited. All the companies involved began as family businesses. Adolf Brockhoff, who was born in Germany, migrated to Australia from America in 1866. His son, Frederick, was born in Port Ferry, South Australia, and had three sons, one of whom produced Alan Bruce Brockhoff. Perhaps this is the same Bruce Brockhoff uh, your correspondent is referring to, who rang us last week. John Allen Brockhoff went on to become general manager of Arnott's Brockhoff Guest. In, yeah, Guest there, was, there were so many biscuit companies, wasn't there, in 1980. And one year later, a director of Arnott's Biscuits Limited and then director in 1984. There you go. So that's the Brockhoff story. That's the biscuit story, kids. Ah, uh, Dick Smith online. Good morning, Dick. Hi there, Macca. How are you? Uh, good, thank you. I don't know if you heard much of Christian. Um, the young pilot who rang, he's 17, 17 and training for a pilot's licence. And oh, he's yep. already got his, his basic licence, I, I uh, understand. But he told us about this um, transponder that maybe they're going to need. The air services say that, uh, that you need some sort of transponder to fly between 8,000 and 1,500. Then at the end of the conversation, he said they're reviewing it. Uh, do you know, you probably know all about this, do you? Yeah, I know all about it. Look, it's an absolute disaster. I've tried to contact the minister responsible, Michael McCormack, the deputy prime minister, but he won't talk to me. He just sends me text messages saying they're re-looking at it. But if it's anything um, that we can go on from the Civil Aviation Safety Authority and Air Services, they'll go ahead and bring it in. We've had about 20 years of just more and more expensive regulations for general aviation regulations like nothing else in the world and they just screw these small operators out of business so in the end you know all of our pilots will end up coming from china i remember when we were up where were we was at burketown and we talked to that bloke who had a he had a, a well you can't call it an airline but he, he used to yeah. fly people around and there's lots of people like that in because country australia really has uh, people that you know whether you go to William Creek or anywhere, um, there's all little airlines there which fly people around, people drive there and they want to see the country and the best way to do that, of course, is in a plane. Um, Absolutely. But um, the cost of, of such is, is just increasing every year. I suppose it's the same yeah, with everything. But, but, uh, but in, the, in the tyranny of distance Australia, we, need, you know, we need, to, need to make some allowances, don't we? We do for sure. Look, I've operated for over 30 years out of Bankstown Airport and now it's just completely dead and all the flying schools have closed down. They've rented out the hangars to companies that sell cranes or hire out cars and uh, it's a disaster. And uh, just to explain what they're planning now is to bring some extra controlled airspace in for the airlines, which is a good idea. But instead of following the proven U.S. system, which I'd started to bring in and wanted to continue to bring in, the U.S. airspace is the safest in the world, especially when you consider the terrible weather, the 15 times the amount of aeroplanes in about the same airspace and high mountain ranges. But what they've decided to do here, first of all, it should be CASA, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, proposing this safety increase. But in this case, it's Air Services Australia, the air traffic control body, who have no real interest in general aviation at all. It's not their bailiwick. And uh, in America, you need these transponders, which can cost $3,000 or more each, if you fly above 10,000 feet, which most small planes don't. That's about two miles height. But in Australia, some genius have said, oh, no, we're going to bring, it, bring the level down to 1,500 feet because it will be safer. 
Now, it will be minutely safer. It's hardly measurable. But the cost is tens of millions of dollars, and you'll just further completely destroy all the small planes and the charter operators and the uh, training schools. And a young bloke like Christian, who wants to spend his life flying around Australia, I think. Um, yeah, I mean... If- it's. Uh, I, I just find it, these people need to get out into a country Australia and find out how difficult it is to get around without flying and whether you land anywhere. I mean, landing costs, all those sort of things just seem to be going up, uh, Dick. Yep. Look, I'm going to try and again get a meeting with Michael McCormack. He won't have anything to do with me for some reason, I think. The bureaucracy have said, Minister, whatever you do, don't talk to Dick Smith. And that's, that's ridiculous. That's because you're a nuisance, Dick. You're, you're asking things <laughs> that he just... <laughs> yeah, but I'm you're asking too, things... You're too hard, we, Dick. No, but we could be the best in the world in general aviation, flight training, recreational aviation. That was our plan. I even managed to get it in as part of the National Party's policy that we would be the world's leader in recreational flying and in flying training. But then on the election they actually got in, someone had removed it, that removed that statement from their policy. And so you've got Michael McCormack, who's you'd think he would want to support country people because what this is going to do is affect all the country pilots, the farmers, the uh, the people who use aviation, mustering pilots. It's going to have an incredible effect. Add, I think someone said about $30 million to the costs without any measurable increase in safety at all. There you go. Uh, Dick, tell me this quickly. Um, got yep. a minute or two. Um, how have you been coveting? I mean, we really haven't heard from you for about a year. What have you no. been? How, how have you been? No, I've been working. I've got the Family Foundation where we help people, so I've been working on that like mad. Um, Pip and I bought this little sun camp, a camper van, something built in Australia, amazing, and we're going to head around Australia in that on the ground for a difference. So don't have, have and spent 30 years flying across Australia, going to look from the ground, and uh, hopefully in about two weeks' time we'll head, if the borders open, sort of we're going to go anti... Oh, hold on clockwise around Australia this time and uh, just see this fantastic country as it is because it's a beautiful place. I'll say, and more important, people are getting out uh, now to see it, of course, because they can't go overseas, they can't go skiing in Aspen, so they they get out and go to all sorts of little places, which might be good for the place, I think, Dick. Yeah, wonderful. Oh, by the way, I forgot, I think I might have mentioned before, I've written my autobiographies, so that's going to come out in October. Alan and Unwin are publishing that. And I tell the whole story of starting Dick Smith Electronics with $610 with Pip and how we did quite well and then got Australian <laughs> Geographic well. going and, and then got Dick Smith Foods going and all the different flights around the world and flying balloons. And hopefully it's going to be an exciting story. I'm not a very good writer, but the, but the story is interesting. I'll say, good on you, Dick. Nice to talk. <laughs> You, Lovely to talk to you. Bye bye, Mac. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.